1: I'm Charles Sims. The United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking estimates that there are as many as 2.5 million people in forced labor at any given time. The United States State Department estimates that between 600,000 and 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders each year. There are also reports that there may be as many as 27 million slaves in the world today. If that is accurate, That would be the highest recorded number of slaves in history. The trafficking of humans is most commonly for commercial sexual exploitation, forced labor, obtaining organs or tissues, or forced marriage. It is thought to be one of the fastest-growing international crimes, netting an estimated $31 billion annually. Our guests for this podcast are working to understand and address this disturbing issue. Dr. Noel Bush Armendavez is a professor of social work in the School of Social Work at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Bush Armendavez is the Associate Dean for Research and Principal Investigator of the Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. She has more than 19 years' experience working in violence against women and their children and has worked as a battered women's advocate, support group leader, Program director and registered lobbyist. In addition to her work in the area of interpersonal violence, Dr. Bush Armendabez began working with refugees and immigrants in 1986 as an immigrant assistant and previously served as the principal investigator of the Green Leaf Project, a project that provides intensive health and mental health services to refugees, victims of trafficking and asylees, as well as other immigrants in Central Texas. She is also the principal investigator of several research projects exploring the needs of refugees and asylee families and victims of human trafficking by interviewing victims of these crimes. Dr. Bush Armandavez has many peer reviewed publications in her areas of expertise. Over the past 20 years, She has traveled extensively throughout the world, visiting more than 30 countries, and she has lived and worked in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Romania, Albania, South Korea, and most recently, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Lori Cook Hefferin is a research program coordinator and doctoral student with the University of Texas at Austin's Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. She also serves as Editorial Assistant to Ophelia, Journal of Women and Social Work. Ms. Cook Hefferin has both direct social work practice and research experience with a variety of communities, including refugees, victims of trafficking, asylees, and other immigrants in Central Texas. In this podcast, our guests provide an in-depth understanding of human trafficking, including a description of what human trafficking is how it might present to the social work practitioner, the role for the social work profession in combating it, as well as specific ideas how social workers can be an advocate and resource for those who are trafficked. Dr. Bush Armandavez and Ms. Cook Hefferin were interviewed for this podcast in September of 2014 by Dr. Hilary Weaver, Professor and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work.
0: So I would like to start today by getting some background information. What exactly is human trafficking? Sure. This is Noelle. You know, at its basic
2: form, human trafficking is forced fraud or coercion. It's really the exploitation of people for those purposes. What we know is that there are ways in which people are exploited for benefit, for economic gains of traffickers and those who facilitate trafficking in those basic forms. And that's really a legal definition of trafficking. What we also know is that it doesn't involve the movement of people. Although it can, we often think that trafficking has to involve people coming over the border of another nation. It doesn't have to involve movement. The elements really involve whether somebody is forced, frauded, or coerced.
0: And if they're forced, frauded, or coerced, what sort of activities are they forced into?
3: This is Laurie. It can be just really a wide variety of activities. So for the area of sex trafficking, they might be forced or coerced into working in a brothel, working street-based prostitution, working in some kind of escort service or massage parlor that has a behind-the-scenes prostitution element. It could be internet-based prostitution or escort services. And then on the other side for labor trafficking, again, a wide variety that can exist in agricultural settings, in manufacturing, construction, domestic servitude, which might include childcare and house cleaning inside someone's home. It can exist in the hospitality and the tourism industry, carnivals, in the entertainment sector. So. It really types of trafficking crimes have been seen in lots of different industries.
2: This is Noelle again, just to sort of expand on Laurie's idea. What we often talk about in the anti-trafficking field is trafficking in plain sight. So while it's very hard to determine the extent of trafficking, many of us are involved in trafficking in ways that we wouldn't normally know particularly around labor trafficking. So as Laurie described, when you think about how many of us have gotten our nails done or taken a cruise or eaten at a restaurant, what we know about the cases that have been prosecuted in the United States is that's where trafficking has happened. So it is hidden in plain sight. What we also know about trafficking is that victims of human trafficking are very reluctant to come forward for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about, this also makes it very difficult to get a hold of what the extent of the problem is or the prevalence of human trafficking is.
3: This is Laurie again. One of uh, recent and creative endeavors to really dig down into prevalence of labor trafficking through a project by Sheldon Zhang out in San Diego, funded by the National Institute of Justice, that study found that more than 30 percent of undocumented migrant workers from Mexico had experienced something that would meet the definition of human trafficking. And in the top three categories being food services or food manufacturing, janitorial or cleaning services and construction. So as Noel mentioned, construction sites being a very clear example of something in plain sight, something we might drive by or ride by every day, those kinds of work or landscaping, for example, as well.
0: Well, I find this really disturbing because prior to speaking with you, I would have thought that human trafficking is a smaller issue and it happens somewhere else far away from me. But you're telling us that any of us could in some way touch the lives of people that are trafficked, that they're hidden in plain sight, that this could potentially be a huge issue. Am I hearing that correctly? You are, Hillary. And I think that's part of
2: the campaign to get the word out about, you know, what are the signs of somebody who's being trafficked and how can we get involved as social workers versus professionals and then concerned citizens? Some of the prevalence eludes us, but the International Labor Organization tells us that worldwide, nearly 21 million people are trafficked and 1.2 million children are trafficked and still being exploited for the purposes of sex or labor. So it's not an insignificant number of people that are being exploited. And in fact, what we think is today in the U.S., there's more modern slavery going on than before we signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So it should be a call to action to all of us around how we value freedom and justice. We should probably also point out that it doesn't have to do just with people crossing our borders, as we talked about. It doesn't have to do with just the transportation of people. People who are trafficked are also American citizens. One of the things that's coming to light through some really good, innovative research is that Domestic minors are at risk for being trafficked in all sorts of ways, but particularly in the sex industry in the United States. So these would be runaways, essentially, often children who have been involved with the child welfare system, but not exclusively, children who are forgotten, who have had very difficult histories, children who have often had contact with social workers in the past, and they get engaged by somebody who is going to exploit them for the purposes of sex. And they have had interface with the systems that social workers come in contact, whether it be the Department of Social Services or the juvenile justice system or other child welfare systems. So it should be a concern of every American because one of our underlying values is the freedom of all people.
3: This is Laurie. I think, as Noel mentioned, you know, we have a large question of education and training here. And so oftentimes when Noel and I are in the community talking to folks in domestic violence shelters or sexual assault or rape crisis centers, child welfare, et cetera, or homeless runaway youth organizations, we might ask the question at the beginning of how many clients or cases of human trafficking someone has seen and very few hands go up. And then at the end of a discussion about what human trafficking means, what exploitation is, We might ask the question again, and typically, almost every hand goes up. As people think back through their cases, if they're a child welfare worker, if they're a school social worker, if they're a medical social worker, they think back through and they see the signs in past folks that they have worked with that possibly meet the definition of human trafficking in one way or another.
0: Well, you're certainly broadening my mind here as to how big an issue this is and who it applies to. It seems to apply to all sorts of vulnerable populations that we as social workers might have encountered. Are there particular types of people that are more vulnerable to human trafficking, or could this really just be anyone? Well, it really could be
2: anybody. So we know that from the cases that have been prosecuted in the U.S. that men, women, and children have all been victims of human trafficking. So it really could be anybody. But having said that, we also know that there are particular vulnerabilities of victims. So traffickers prey on the vulnerabilities of people that are easily, more easily exploited. So we need to start there. Certainly, we know that people that are trafficked into the sex industry are more often women and girls. So gender makes you more vulnerable in that industry. Although we don't want to ever ignore the pain and suffering of anybody, and I think probably underreported are boys and men who are trafficked into the sex industry. And we just know little about what is happening for men and boys who are exploited in that industry. Because labor trafficking is less understood in this country, there is assumption that men are more exploited in that industry, although I don't want to overstate that either. But in some of these cases that have been prosecuted in the US, like in agriculture, landscaping, construction, the primary victims would be men. So I say that sort of to give a balance to uh, listeners around it really could be anybody. What I think is important for people to know is that when people are trafficked, they're not trafficked without this forced fraud or coercion going on. So what fraud looks like is that people are told they're coming or gonna be engaged in legitimate jobs right? So they come thinking they're going to have a legitimate job, it's going to be a legitimate business, and then they get engaged with a, quote, business owner, and it's illegitimate, and they're doing something that is not what they thought. Force is used, but it's actually not used as frequently. Many of the cases that Lori and I have been involved in Force is not used because these other forms of fraud and coercion are used, and they're very powerful for victims. So the coercion that is involved is the psychological manipulation that goes on, spoken threats of the victim, implied threats, climates of fear, threats or harm to the victim's children, for example, taking possessions that would be valuable to the victim. So let me give a quick example, and this would be an international victim who has crossed the border, who's been told that she's going to come for a legitimate job working in a modeling agency or working as an au pair. She's been given fake visa documents to get here. She doesn't know those are fake visa documents. She gets here. Those documents are confiscated along with her legitimate passport And then she eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually is put into the sex industry, maybe slowly at first, but is required to take maybe some nude pictures at first, maybe do peep shows at first, and then eventually maybe trafficked into the sex industry. And all the while, what keeps her in that industry are the threats to being turned into immigration her lack of understanding about her rights as a crime victim in the United States, and also perhaps the threats to her family at home. So the psychological coercion that goes on, the threats, the implied threats to her physical well-being keep her in that industry. One of the biggest prosecuted cases in terms of numbers of victims rescued happened many years ago in Houston, and those victims were trafficked for three years. And they weren't chained down. They actually lived in apartments in the community, but they continued to be exploited because they didn't know their rights as workers in the U.S. So they were underpaid. They were sexually assaulted. They were made to do things that workers wouldn't normally have to do in the U.S., in large part because of lack of knowledge about what their rights were.
3: This is Laurie. Another element of that coercion oftentimes is getting involved in a cycle of debt. And so oftentimes, in particular with immigrant victims of trafficking, they may have come over having been smuggled. And so that would be considered a crime of crossing an international border and they would be considered having committed that crime. However, after being smuggled across into the United States, smugglers or coyotes will often demand the fee for the help crossing. And so that's when oftentimes men and women and children, including the unaccompanied children migrants we're seeing currently from Central America and Mexico. So that's when folks often get into trouble is they owe a debt to their smuggler. And so they become quite vulnerable. So they're not documented in the United States. They owe this large debt. And so they're vulnerable and to other kinds of work, under the table work, which sometimes can turn into trafficking or exploitation. And so in the example Noel mentioned, the Mondragon case in Houston Women were in this cycle of debt. Many were paying off a smuggling debt. So they were working, but they could never pay off the full debt. So they might make some money towards the debt in this exploitative work. And then the trafficker, now the person exploiting them, might say, well, you know, I bought you a hamburger yesterday and that costs, you know, they'll inflate that price. And so people get into a situation where no matter how much money they're making for the person exploiting them, they can never pay off their full debt. And so they're in this kind of never ending cycle. And that is often something that undocumented immigrants in particular are very vulnerable
0: to. Well, you've painted quite a dramatic picture of this issue of who's involved, the things that keep them in this sort of situation. I'm looking for some hope here because this sounds very disturbing. Can you tell me about some of the work that you're doing around these issues?
2: Sure. This is Noelle. We're part of a coalition. We got involved in Austin, Texas after the first identification of a case of human trafficking back in 2003. And we got involved in a couple of ways as researchers, but also because we had a program that was providing intensive mental health services and the community came together to decide how should we respond to human trafficking and we were really on the cusp as a nation in responding collectively to human trafficking the trafficking protection victims act had just been passed in 2000 and so many communities were trying to decide how to respond and we think about it as it was then the three p's and it's now the four p's around prosecution protection, prevention, and now partnership. And so there are a lot of efforts going on to understand the scope of the problem, circle the wagons, if you will, around law enforcement, around social services coming together, and around real deep community effort to end slavery. And so I think with those three or four prongs, we will see sort of the level of tolerance lower or intolerance rise in terms of what communities will be willing to do to end slavery.
3: This is Laurie. I think, as Noel mentioned, the collaboration that has come up And just in response to the difficulty of sort of cracking this crime here in our own community, but in communities across the United States is, I think, something that's quite hopeful, the ways folks have pulled together and started working together. I think also there are many national efforts that really have become quite creative in helping folks learn more about human trafficking and begin to combat it. And two examples are actually websites or technical assistance pieces. One is called the Slavery Footprint, slaveryfootprint.org which is an educational tool to help people understand how the products they buy in their daily lives might be connected to forced labor or human trafficking across the world. Another is called freetowork.org, which is a way that concerned citizens can look into the products they buy and see, again, what kind of forced labor is involved in that, and then make a comment to the producers of those products, to the companies manufacturing those products, about how we as consumers won't stand for this kind of treatment of those producing them. So I think you know what we're seeing is a lot of very creative collaborations and very creative innovations in the
2: field. So, and there are lots of other ways to get involved. We teach a course on human trafficking here at the University of Texas at Austin. We did some research on how many courses at research universities are taught or how many seminars are being held because what we find is this generation wants to be involved in this effort. I think organizations should have policies, anti-trafficking policies. The University of Texas at Austin has one. As an administrator, I sign off saying that, to my knowledge, nobody here is being trafficked. So I think those are starts in ways that we address this issue. So the more we talk about it, the more we understand the signs, the more we get information out there I'll also just say two things. I was traveling this summer quite a bit, and I flew through Atlanta, and on the back of the family restroom, because I was with my young son, they had information about trafficking, and if you are a victim of trafficking. So it was a sign about that in English and in Spanish, I believe it was. I took a picture of it, and I sent it to everybody who does the work here in Austin. And then when I landed at Reagan National Airport, there was a big billboard, and I actually missed the billboard, but my husband saw it, so I took a picture of it as we were exiting the airport. So I think there's more being talked about. I think we have to talk about it in a way that can be consumable to the average citizen so people understand what we're talking about, and I think some of the examples that Lori mentioned about free to work and slave free products are ways in which people can consume so if you for example are getting engaged and want to buy a ring that is not produced by slaves there's a way to do that and my niece just got engaged and was telling me about how she and her fiance went about buying her engagement ring so i was real proud of her for this generation of wanting to be smart consumers
3: This is Laurie. I think the other sort of creative aspect that I think is possible here is that in terms of social work education, as Noelle mentioned, students are very interested in learning more, doing more, taking action in this issue, and it presents quite an opening to talk about other kinds of social justice issues. It presents an opening to talk about sexism, racism, classism, human rights perspective. And so I think in the classroom, we as social workers have a real opportunity to use the topic of human trafficking as a platform to cover many other topics and issues important to social work students.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I'll just piggyback on that. I also think it's a great way to this Noel. I think it's a great way to also talk about interprofessional collaboration in a way that really brings together multiple disciplines with an understanding of how we have to work together to solve this issue. Because it's a nonpartisan issue, it's an easy issue for a lot of disciplines to want to get together on. So law enforcement, social services, the medical professional, we have found that when we talk about the issue and describe it, people want to rally against it and get on board. So Social workers can be at the heart of organizing that piece of it and building the systems around competent service delivery in every aspect of those. Part of our writing is around how social workers can do that and how they hold the victim at the center of that dialogue. Because it is difficult to report, to come forward, to go forward in a case because of the forced fraud and coercion as a survivor or a victim of trafficking. You are scared. And trauma-informed care is very important. And social workers understand that complexity better than any professional sitting around that interdisciplinary table. And we really want social workers to be leading that discussion and having that perspective. So we've written quite a bit about that. Many other social work experts have written about that also. And so it's a great place for social workers to lead the national dialogue.
0: Well, you've described a lot of really exciting efforts that sound very positive. I, too, have seen those billboards or flyers around the country trying to bring attention to the issue of human trafficking. Until listening to you, though, I was always a bit skeptical about what next. Okay, there's a billboard. We we see this. But I was wondering if a lot of people just left it at that. I think that there probably are some people that get on those websites and, like you said, buy the ring that was not made through forced labor. But I also want to point out that it's probably an uphill battle in many places and give you credit for all of this great work. The idea that you have a class in human trafficking at Austin seems quite amazing to me because I think many of our colleague schools would not necessarily have that. The fact that you have a university that has policies to look at this also seems quite innovative to me. So I do agree with you that this is something that social workers should be concerned about. This is a social justice issue. This is a door to many other things. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you opened that door in your particular case, how did you get this course on human trafficking at Austin? How did you get your university to have these policies and really make them meaningful and not just words on a piece of paper? So if you could expand on those, that would be great. Well, this is
2: Noel. thank you for the compliments and we'll take them and also give credit where credit is due. It really is a collaborative effort. I will say that I think we back up all the way to the work that we do on the, with the Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, where Laurie and I are housed, which started about 14 or 15 years ago. And we see this work as an extension of that work. And part of the hard conversations around in human trafficking, at least around when we look at the work around sex the exploitation for sex is to understand that people are involved in that work when we're complicit around the issues of sexual assault, for example. And I've been starting to have these hard conversations. So when any of us are complicit about sexual assault and when we continue to blame sexual assault victims, that along that continuum is this issue of human trafficking. And that's the work we've been doing for 15 years. So I think that you make small inroads and when you continue to have, you build relationships, it comes down to some of the fundamentals of good social work practice. You build relationships with people, trust you, and then you start to have hard dialogue with people. And when you have good relationships, then you can start to influence the way people think. And so I think that we haven't just done that ourselves, Laurie and me, but that it's taken a whole community of people here in Austin doing that, sort of basing or tethering the work that we do on what we know is morally and ethically right, and then continuing to have the hard conversations and knowing that this is the right fight to fight. So I think that's part of what goes on. So And then when you lose sort of the goal, when you put a goal up and it doesn't go anywhere, that you just persevere. That's part of our role. You persevere because it is the right thing to do. So, And that you know that part of what gets things done is planting seeds. So having said that, the team of people that makes this happen is quite frankly, members of our Texas legislature who has championed the issue of human trafficking. So part of what has gone on is that we have some champions who have wanted to push this issue. So it comes up session after session after session. We have an attorney general who also wants to know this issue. We have a university that is supportive of empirical work. We have concerned citizens and NGOs who are doing good work on the front lines. Although we don't always agree, we stay engaged in that conversation. And I think part of the reason that we're successful is that we agree to stay engaged in those conversations, and we try not to let the disagreements break down the movement forward that we hold that we each have roles to do, or missions in our organizations and regardless of that we're going to move forward for what is the better good of
0: the city or the state and we hope survivors. And have you experienced much pushback or ambivalence when you call for action around human trafficking? You know,
2: I'll let Lori speak to this, too. I would say we haven't experienced huge pushback, not like we experienced in the domestic violence or sexual assault movements, where we had huge pushback or backlash in those movements. This seems to be more nonpartisan. These survivors and victims seem to be seen as or defined by a lot of people as victims. So it's in some ways, it's been easier in those respects. We have had the full backing of the federal government. So unlike those other movements, the federal government has led the way in so many ways with the passing of the TVPA in 2000. And then states have got on board afterwards. So some of this has been different in those ways. And we also have a ton of lessons learned from those movements, from the domestic violence and sexual assault movements about how to do things well and different and how to do things differently. What didn't go well between NGOs, social services and law enforcement, for example, and how not to repeat that again in this movement. So I would say that it's been different having been in both those efforts. And I'll let Lori respond because mm-hmm. she's been deeply involved in the front lines also.
3: Um, I wouldn't categorize what we've seen as pushback. Some movement has been slower than other movement <laughs> over the years. I think really getting a handle on the child welfare field because it's so large and complex, that field in and of itself has been maybe slow going. And so patience and perseverance has been needed there. The other thing I think has been quite interesting and is important are there are growing, I think, conversations among activists, among social workers, among those working in this area around the idea of prostitution and questions around is all prostitution forced or coerced in some way? Is there a place for sex work that is not coerced? And these ideas that really people across the world are battling with around criminalization or decriminalization of prostitution. And so I think there's some real debates happening in the field of social work right now around those topics that are really important for us to be having. And so, as Noel mentioned, to not shy away from those conversations, but for all of us to really continue coming to the table and not being afraid to talk about that, to talk about ethical obligations of social workers and what all of this means for us.
0: Speaking of social workers, you made a really great point earlier in the conversation that a lot of the people who end up being trafficked are people that have been involved with many of our social work systems somewhere along the way. Do you see more roles that social workers should be playing to perhaps identify this population earlier, maybe prevent some of this, or at least intervene earlier? This is Noelle. I think that, you know, the short answer is yes. I think there's a big role
2: for social work to play. Just to clarify, too, the context of that comment was around domestic minors of sex trafficking. What we know, at least our best knowledge right now, is that most of the domestic minor sex trafficking, which would be U.S., American citizens who are being exploited through the sex industry have had some interface with a social service system. That may not be true in terms of international victims of trafficking or labor trafficking victims. They may be more hidden, but that is not to say that they haven't come in contact with some system. For example, what we know is when a labor trafficking victim is hurt on the job, for example. They may have to seek medical attention in an emergency room or a clinic. And so if the social worker in that emergency room or clinic can be alert to possible exploitation, that could really help uncover what is happening in a labor trafficking situation. In the case of the domestic minors, we do know that most of those domestic minors, our best knowledge to date is that most domestic minors, have come through the child welfare system. And so they have had a caseworker. Now, we also need to acknowledge that many caseworkers in child welfare systems are not trained social workers, so that's a challenge to us in most states in this country, that we need more social workers in those systems. But caseworkers need to be alerted. One of the projects that we're working on and hoping to work on more fully is how do we develop some screening tools for school systems, for child welfare systems, for medical systems, so that we can help professionals in those systems be able to identify somebody who is being exploited, so that then they know how to identify them and then what to do if that person is being identified or they suspect they're being identified. How do they reach out and tap into the services already available locally or at the national level. So I think those are the roles for social workers to play because we are at the front lines. Those are at more at the micro level. There are all sorts of macro ways that social workers should be involved in setting the policy at the state and national levels, doing the research that advances our knowledge and practice which are, you know, most appropriate also for social workers to be involved in.
0: So that sounds like a call to action on many different levels for us.
2: Yes, always, right? Social workers always need to be at the front lines of human suffering at every single level.
0: You've talked about a lot today in terms of human trafficking and who's involved and what it looks like. I wonder if there's a particular message that you would like to really emphasize for our listeners, any particular takeaway from your work.
3: I mean, I think, you will really hit on it just now, which is that our discipline, social workers in all kinds of practices, really need to be having these conversations, both in the organizations where they're working And in their social circles, in their circles of friends, one of the things I tell students is that when students are fired up about this issue and they want to take action and they may be frustrated that action is not happening more quickly, one of the things I fully believe is that the conversations we have with our friends and our neighbors and our family members about something we read, something we learned about, about a book, that these are some of the most powerful conversations in terms of the human trafficking field. These are some of the most powerful conversations that can happen. And so I guess my message is for us to just keep chipping away at this and not being afraid to continue to look at this crime in the face. This is Noelle. I would say one
2: of the things that social workers should do is realize that from whatever practice discipline they are at, that they can be involved in this issue. The idea is that they don't have to change to an anti-trafficking organization, that we're better served if social workers stay exactly where they're practicing and develop the tools and strategies to see trafficking from that lens, that we having that broad brush perspective will get us further, faster, than anything else. So if they can join the anti-trafficking movement, but stay exactly where they are practicing, will be better off as a discipline. And to bring the smart skills that social workers have to the discipline itself.
3: Uh, This is Laurie. I agree with that. I think one of the most important things we can do is continue to build bridges across work settings and types of social work practice. And see this as an issue of structural oppression that, you know, one of the dangers we run in human trafficking with it being such a hot topic, a topic that's covered in the media, often very superficially, is we run the risk of continuing the discussion about it at a very superficial level, as opposed to continuing to deepen our understanding of it and deepen our collaborations and the ways we all work together, seeing it from a very broad perspective, not just at this narrow crime.
0: Well, I think you've given us some very important things to think about. I really appreciate the messages that you shared with us today. One of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago was the idea of planting seeds, and that's the beginning of how things start to get done. You've certainly done that with me today. You've got me thinking about this in a more holistic way as an issue that could touch really every aspect of my life. So I think I'll be walking through my day with my eyes a little bit more open, a little bit better listener to see what might be around me. And also you've given me some tools, some ideas for what I might be able to do should I recognize human trafficking in my own environment. So I thank you for that. I think you've planted seeds with our listeners. And this is very, very important work. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thanks, Hillary. We really appreciate the interview. We do want to leave the
2: listeners with the National Human Trafficking Hotline if we can. It's one 888
0: 3737 7888 So if some of our listeners believe that there is human trafficking going on around them, they should call that number? They
2: should. And so that can be a concerned citizen, a social worker, if they feel like they just need more information, if they have a tip, if something doesn't seem right in a situation that may involve somebody that they know They can call this hotline, and the hotline can help that situation, and then the hotline will engage local services after initial call um, or intake. So it's a great resource for the nation.
0: All right. That is an important resource. Well, thank you so much, and continue with the good work. Thank you very much.
1: You have been listening to a discussion on human trafficking by Dr. Noel Bush Amendabes and Miss Lori Cook Hefferin. We hope that you have found it instructive. Please join us again at in Social Work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.